You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. We've got a Patch Tuesday update. Another commercial surveillance company is outed. Voice security and the challenge of fraud. CISA updates its zero-trust maturity model. Effects of the U.S. intelligence leaks. Our guest, Eric Goldstein, Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA, outlines the agency's role in the cybersecurity community. Andre Kirtland of NetSurit makes the case for DevSecOps. And Russian cyber auxiliaries are believed responsible for disrupting the Canadian Prime Minister's website. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, April 12th, 2023. We begin with a quick note about Patch Tuesday, which this month was yesterday. Companies addressed a large number of vulnerabilities, some of which are undergoing active exploitation. Fortinet released 21 vulnerability advisories. Siemens and Schneider Electric patched 38 vulnerabilities. Adobe patched 56 vulnerabilities. Apple and Microsoft rolled out their latest security updates. And CISA has issued another round of advisories. Do take a look at the updates. You'll find a summary on our website. Yesterday, Microsoft and the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab announced the discovery that a hitherto little-remarked Israeli firm, Quadream, has been selling its surveillance platform to governments in Europe, North America, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. And we note that little-remarked doesn't mean unnoticed. Facebook's parent, Meta, this past December, took note of the company in its threat report on the surveillance for higher industry. Microsoft characterizes Quadream as a private sector offensive actor, and the company has had partners as well as customers. One of these partners is a contentious one. Its activity, now attributed to the company, had been tracked as Dev0196. The product it sells is known as Rain, that's R-E-I-G-N, and Microsoft calls the malware the platform deploys against iOS targets as King's Pawn. The company amounts to a cyber mercenary operation, in Microsoft's view, and it sells both services and tools to its government customers. 
Microsoft explains, they sell hacking tools or services through a variety of business models, including access as a service. In access as a service, the actor sells full end-to-end hacking tools that can be used by the purchaser in cyber operations. The PSOA itself is not involved in any targeting or running of the operations. Citizen Lab, which cooperated with Microsoft in the investigation, says that Quadream's targets have included journalists, political opposition figures, and at least one NGO worker. The business keeps as low a profile as possible. Citizen Lab says Quadream operates with a minimal public presence, lacking a website, extensive media coverage, or social media presence. Quadream employees have reportedly been instructed to refrain from mentioning their employer on social media. Many are accustomed to thinking of NSO Group and its Pegasus product when the topic of commercial spyware vendors comes up, but it's bigger than just one company, as this note indicates. The researchers conclude with the observation that the commercial surveillance market is shifting and evolving and is larger than any single company. Voice technology company Pindrop has released their yearly Voice Intelligence and Security Report, which analyzed 5 billion calls and 3 million fraud catches within financial institutions, insurers, and the like. The report found that states imposing restrictions on biometrics had double the chance of experiencing fraud. Financial institutions were also observed to have a 53% year-over-year increase in fraud in the fourth quarter of 2022, given that there was financial uncertainty. Retail has also been found to have high rates of fraud, with one in every 347 calls identified as fraudulent. Interactive voice response, or IVR, has also been observed to be a target, with data from the dark web leveraged and tested in the IVR to identify high-value accounts and attack them. CISA yesterday updated its zero-trust maturity model, including recommendations from public commentary and increasing the government's zero-trust capabilities. The agency wrote yesterday that the zero-trust approach is designed by the agency as an approach where access to data, networks, and infrastructure is kept to what is minimally required and the legitimacy of that access must be continuously verified. The agency has recognized that the architectures implemented by different organizations have different maturity levels and come from different starting points. This maturity model has added a new stage called initial, which can be used to identify maturity for each pillar. This updated model is said to provide a gradient of implementation across the pillars, which allow for the advancement of zero-trust architecture within agencies. The five pillars are identify, devices, network, data, and applications and workloads. Chris Butera, technical director for cybersecurity at CISA, said, As one of many roadmaps, the updated model will lead agencies through a methodical process and transition toward greater zero-trust maturity. While applicable to federal civilian agencies, all organizations will find this model beneficial to review and use to implement their own architecture. The source and effect of recent U.S. intelligence leaks remains under investigation, but it's increasingly become clear that compromised files, whatever manipulations may have altered them for purposes of disinformation, and however opportunistic their collection appears to have been, represent a major problem for the U.S. 
Ukraine isn't deterred by the leaks, which contain relatively little information about operational plans, and so Kyiv remains confident of the ultimate success of its spring offensive. The Department of Defense and other U.S. government agencies are also working to contain any damage the leaks may have done to relations with friendly countries. The Washington Post has a summary of the nations mentioned in the compromise documents. Many observers are struck by the degree of access to the Russian government U.S. intelligence services appear to have achieved. U.S. senators have called for a full briefing on the incident, the Hill reports, and they're likely to receive that briefing. And finally, Canada is receiving the attention of Russian cyber auxiliaries. A DDoS attack interrupted the availability of Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau's official website for a few hours yesterday. According to IT World Canada, the attack appears to have been timed to coincide with the government's meeting today with Ukrainian Prime Minister Denis Shmiel. Service was restored by 2 p.m. Eastern Time yesterday. The Prime Minister addressed the outage at a press conference, saying, As you know, it's not uncommon for Russian hackers to target countries as they're showing steadfast support for Ukraine, as they are welcoming Ukrainian delegations or leadership to visit, so the timing isn't surprising. But in case anyone was wondering, Russia being able to bring down an official Government of Canada webpage for a few hours is in no way going to dissuade us from our unshakable support of Ukraine. Coming up after the break, Eric Goldstein, Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA, outlines his agency's role in the cybersecurity community. Andre Kertland of NetSureit makes the case for DevSecOps. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. 
With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Many organizations embraced DevOps, short for Development and Operations, as an effective method of increasing the speed and quality of their software development and delivery. That's all well and good, but it's led many security folks to say, not so fast. DevSecOps is where you need to be, including security as a primary element of your development process from the get-go. Andre Kirtland is a solutions architect at NetSureit, and I spoke with him about the benefits of a DevSecOps approach. So what we're starting to see a lot is that people are starting to adopt DevOps, so which is obviously a combination of dev and ops. So they've got integrated processes to not just get their apps written, but to get them deployed into production. What we're still seeing a lot, though, is that people aren't taking security seriously. Um, they're paying lip service to it, trying to do the minimum. Common approach that I see is uh, people leaving security right to the end. So they write their whole app and then they say, okay, what do we need to do to make it secure? And um, there's also a very common attitude that security is somebody else's job. So um, they might depend on some infosec department or an external consultant to come in and wave a magic wand and make their app secure. And you're not getting that the dev teams necessarily do that work from the start. And that's the whole story of... Um, Measurement drives behavior. So um, if your dev team is being measured on how fast can they get the code out the door, how good's the functionality they can build into the app, how good's the app's performance or uh, reliability, they, but they're not being measured on how secure is the app, then they're not really going to pay a lot of attention to the security aspects. And what are the issues there? I mean, if you do save security for the last thing, what are some of the issues that can come into play there? The problem is that you can get vulnerabilities that get baked into the app during the dev process. So, for instance, people might make use of a library that contains vulnerabilities in itself that uh, got inherited from somewhere else, and they don't even know that there's insecure code that they've now put into their application. Or they make the application work, but they don't pay attention to things like the identity, the authentication, the authorization, and now you've got that uh, they have insecure methods for how people actually log on and use the application. Very common that we see apps that uh, make use of things like service accounts that are absolute poison in an environment because if that service account gets compromised, then that service account could be used to attack your own environment. Um, we even see cases still where inside of the source code or in the configuration files, you've got things like usernames and passwords and certificates and other credentials, and anybody then manages to get access to that source code can go and in clear text read that information and again use it to attack your environment. So there's a lot of things that you should be looking out for, and if you don't, then uh, you end up with an insecure application. And unfortunately, if you only discover that you're insecure when 
you get ransomware or somebody steals your data, then uh, you could be in deep trouble. Well, if we're looking at DevSecOps, how do we incentivize organizations to to give the security equal weight over, over the dev and the ops? As I said, it comes down to measurement drives behavior to a certain extent. So you're going to need that right at the top of the organization. So CXO level, CIO, CEO, CSO, that uh, they need to... Uh, uh, decide that security is important. They need to understand what is the impact to their organization if the application isn't adequately secure, what could happen if data gets stolen, if there's a breach. And of course, there's plenty of case studies of uh, how businesses have gone under, uh, been destroyed because they had inadequate security and an application got breached. So your first step is you've got to have awareness and acceptance at executive level, and they need to then become executive sponsors for a program to introduce security. uh, Training and knowledge is part of it, but um, you have to basically change developer culture to a certain extent. Your developers are always going to care more about functionality, making the application cool than about making it secure. So you can also supplement them by uh, embedding security into your project, having dedicated security people uh, involved in the whole process from beginning to end, and have people testing your application with a security mindset or a security goal from the beginning. So um, you need to try and get uh, uh, right in the beginning of your process of developing your application when you're still architecting and you're making your decisions about how your application is ultimately going to be constructed At that point, you need to already be thinking about ultimately how is this application going to be made secure? And it's at that point that you could and should be doing things like uh, threat modeling and you should be getting opinions about what are possible things that can go wrong. And the people that you shouldn't just ask your developers what are the potential security risks. At this point, you go and consult uh, external professionals. You maybe do some pen testing. If you're upgrading an existing application, get vulnerability assessment done against it, get external code review, and then use that to go and base your plans for how you improve. How do you convince your developers that this is something worth spending time on or even collaborating with the security folks? How do you, how do you get them to adopt that mindset? It's really difficult and it does take time. Education is a big part of it. And unfortunately, the same way that you're training your end users not to click on emails with phishing links in them, you're going to have to take your devs through a process like that. What I've seen helps is that if when they actually practically see examples of how code gets breached, um, hackathons is one method uh, that uh, we've used where you get a dev team, you get them to write some code, you give them some parameters that are possibly going to lead to something insecure, and then you get somebody to go pen test it and find vulnerabilities and come back and say, okay, look at this, but not from a point of view of you're stupid, we want to make you look bad, but take this as a learning moment, take this as an opportunity to see how vulnerabilities in your code can lead to insecure applications. And it's at that point where you need to ensure that the people that the developers report to, their bosses, have also bought in so that when they're um, evaluating the effectiveness of the development work, that they're already also uh, acknowledging the importance of security and they're measuring the people on security aspects when they're uh, evaluating how good they're doing at their dev job.
That's Andre Kirkland from Netshuret. And I am pleased to welcome to the show Eric Goldstein. He is Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dave. It is great to be here. And thanks to you and your team for all you do to keep us informed every day. Well, it is certainly our pleasure. Um, I would love to start out by, just for folks who may not be completely familiar with the mission there at CISA, can you give us a, a little description of what it exactly it is that you and your colleagues there are charged with? Of course. You know, we at CISA have a really remarkable mission, which is, you know, we are a voluntary trust-based agency with the mission to advance our nation's cybersecurity. And we do that in a few ways. As we look across our federal civilian government, uh, we exercise some pretty remarkable authorities and resources to gain persistent visibility into threats targeting our government uh, and drive really timely action to reduce risk. Uh, But we also know that adversaries are targeting businesses, critical infrastructure, state and local partners every day. And so we work in concert with the cybersecurity community, with industry, with researchers, with the operators of critical infrastructure to make sure that we're advancing adoption of the right practices that secure both the enterprises that are being attacked and the products that we're all using every day. Why was CISA spun up in the first place? What what, uh, prompted the creation of the agency? You know, it's a really great question, Dave. If we think a little bit about CISA's history, we are, of course, an operational component of the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS. And when DHS was first created from the very early days, there was a focus on critical infrastructure, uh, on the the services, the functions, the assets that are critical to to every American's uh, way of life. Uh, And over time, we realized uh, in the department that the initial focus of securing critical infrastructure uh, was on on terrorism, on physical threats. And while that remains important, uh, we have seen over time adversaries, whether nation states or criminal groups, begin to also focus on cyber means as a way to undermine, degrade, render inoperable our critical infrastructure or steal information for financial or geopolitical gains. And so over time, we saw DHS invest more and more uh, in the cybersecurity arm uh, of the department uh, until uh, four years ago, uh, we saw Congress really say, you know, this requires a fully formed, mature operational component uh, like other components uh, in DHS, uh, like FEMA or TSA, to really stand up and engage in this mission uh, in a in a strategic and ongoing way, recognizing that not only do cyber threats remain resonant, but they are only getting more significant as increasingly every aspect of our lives depends on the internet and on technologies and our adversaries recognizing that dependency take advantage of it at a return. And what are the tools that you and your colleagues there have at your disposal to, to make this mission a reality? You know, the, the number one tool that we have is partnerships. Uh, I'll get into that a bit more in a moment, uh, but it does bear noting that we had different tools with different stakeholders with whom we work. And so looking at the federal civilian agencies, we actually have the ability to deploy our own technology, our own sensors, uh, using leading commercial technology across federal networks. And we've made some remarkable advances over the past few years on getting visibility across federal agencies at the host level, the network layer, and in the cloud so we can, in, in real time, 
time understand the prevalence of different asset types, vulnerabilities, misconfigurations, and adversary activities, and that we can actually direct federal agencies to take actions to reduce risk that we identify. Now, those, we'll call them compulsory authorities, are really only resident with our work with federal civilian agencies. And so across the broader nation, you know, we really work in a trust-based partnership with the cybersecurity community, with product providers, and with owners and operators of critical infrastructure. Uh, we have a large regional field force. Every day is knocking on doors, advancing guidance, advancing best practices. Uh, we have grant programs for state and local entities to improve their cybersecurity. And really, our goal is to be a trusted voice for the cybersecurity community so that we're advancing adoption of the right practices at the right time to reduce the most risk per dollar. And again, doing that in a way that is based on an understanding of what the adversaries are doing, how they are exploiting technology across Americans' network, and in a way that every enterprise can rely on to make the best use of their scarce security dollars. You know, as the uh, agency has taken its place in the cybersecurity community, it struck me that a big part of what you all are doing, the way that you have wielded your influence has been very much um, using a carrot approach rather than a stick. Do you think that's an accurate description? It absolutely is. And it really is foundational to our model here at CISA. You know, what we've found is it's almost never the case that an organization doesn't implement the right security control, doesn't invest in security, or has a breach because they didn't want to do the right thing. It's often the case because they lacked resources, they made a business decision that led to a negative security outcome, or maybe even they lacked the right information. And so our goal at CISA is to really be the ally of the security community to inject our voice, our expertise, our perspective into those business conversations that enable the right investment for pro-security outcomes and help the voice of those CISOs, those practitioners be amplified so that in every organization, they're making those decisions that lead to improved security and also to help us ask the right questions, to help us focus less on perhaps the initial access vector and talk a bit more about, well, was the product that the adversary exploited secure by design and secure by default? Could the victim have reasonably been able to secure their enterprise? Asking the right questions to help and drive strategic investment by the right entities to drive the most change. But we believe we can do a lot of that work in a voluntary, trust-based manner, even as, of course, other partners across government may leverage their unique authorities to drive change through regulation or other means. What's your message to our listeners who, who may be uh, considering some kind of collaboration with CISA? The most important message is that there is no organization that can secure their own enterprise alone, whether it is the Fortune 100, the largest federal agencies, our military or civilian governments. And we all have unique capabilities to bring to bear, unique authorities, unique visibility. And one role that CISA has, in part through a piece of our organization that we call the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, is to bring together partners to say, what piece of the puzzle do we each have about what adversaries are doing? What controls actually work to defeat them? And let's drive the right investment in the right way so that we can look back five, 10 years from now and see a security environment where we have less intrusions, the intrusions that do exist are less impactful, and we have a lot more trust in the technology that we are using for all of our functions of everyday life. 
Eric Goldstein is Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA. Mr. Goldstein, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dave. It was my pleasure. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire.